Good morning, good morning, good morning. How's everybody doing at Connect this morning? Good? Man, it's so good to be in the house of the Lord today. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor Derek, and I want to welcome you to Connect if you're here for the first time. I also want to welcome our online and cable viewers. Can we give them a big hand, those that are watching online? Amen. And this is kind of exciting. I also want to give a special shout out. We've got our soft launch taking place right now at our Framingham campus. Can we give it up for them over there? Come on, Framingham. I can't hear you, Framingham. Can I get a whoop whoop? <laughs> Did you guys hear him? No. <laughs> anyway, we're so glad they're watching as well and uh, really excited to kick off this series. You guys get the uh, Brian Adams version of Pastor D this morning because my voice is a little hoarse, so who knows what's going to come out. I might start singing Run to You or Finding It Hard to Believe I'm in Heaven. <clears throat> All right. I don't feel like I'm in heaven, but anyway... <laughs> Uh, you know, I told the worship team, you know, our character leads us, not our feelings. Amen? So um, we got to get that way at church. We come to church, you know, to, to be fed and, and, and to be led, but, but we also got to develop our character. So sometimes we make a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes we give our best even when we don't feel like it. Can I have an amen? amen. So praise the Lord. Well, listen. Um, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, the problem of God. We have a new series we're kicking off, and, and I wanted to get the juices flowing and start it off today because uh, people, some people see God as the solution. Now, most Christians see God as the solution to their problems, but there are a lot of people, including some Christians, that see the problem is God. They don't see him as a solution. They see him more as a problem. And so I want to kind of get into some things because this is an age-old um, problem, our, our issues with God, our problems with God. And so regardless of your background, maybe you're watching online because this will be a series that will probably be attractional to people from different faiths or backgrounds. You could be a Christian. Listen to this. This is going to help equip you in being able to um, present your faith. The Bible says we should have a timely word and an apt reply. We should be able to give an answer to the hope that's within us. But many times we can't do that. If you're a non-Christian or maybe you're what we call now a new term, deconverted. You were a Christian. You were raised in a Christian home. And at some point in your life, you maybe uh, read a book. Uh, you, were, you were in a university and you discovered some things as a result of what the professor was saying. And as a result, you realized you don't believe in God anymore. Uh, you, you denounced or you deconverted. And so this is for you. This might help you, help you to hear something like this. Maybe you come from an agnostic point of view. That's somebody without beliefs. Like, I don't know, you know, what I believe. Or, or, or maybe uh, you're a person who is making up their own religion. You know, I don't like this part of Christianity. I like that part. And I'm going to marry those two. And I'm just going to have my own kind of faith. That's very common today in the world in which we live. Or maybe you're just spiritual. Whoever, wherever you are in your journey, this is for you. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, this is for you. So here's the first thing is we all got questions, okay? Everybody's got questions about uh, their faith and their belief system. And, and my concern in our culture is that many people base their beliefs or shape their beliefs around how they feel, how they feel. And this is a concern. In other words, many people think Christianity is just an emotional not intellectual uh, experience or understanding. And so we, again, we like certain parts of Christianity, but we don't like other parts of Christianity. In fact, 
for most people, a lot of people, they have, even though Christianity is still growing in the world at large, a lot of people, uh, they have issues with Christians because it just looks like a bunch of emotion. It's a crutch. It's just, uh, it's something to help you get through the day. But I want to encourage you as we go forward to shape your beliefs around what is real. To shape your beliefs around what is real. And so this series <clears throat> is going to engage your brain. Amen. You're coming to church to learn something today, okay? This has stretched me. This particular series is a big stretch. I studied apologetics when I was in college in the university, a Christian university, and there's a lot of stuff I studied. Let me tell you something. It went in one ear and out the other. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. Can I have an amen? I mean, if you don't exercise your brain, it's, it's a muscle that can get uh, a little, um, you know, atrophied. And, uh, and so we're going to exercise our brain. I was born into an atheistic home. You may not know that. Some of you know a little bit about my father's story. And, and, and I'm going to get to that a little bit later and how it impacted uh, me and how it impacted our home. But for most of my life, I was raised in a Christian home because my father eventually converted uh, to Christianity. But it wasn't for me until my late teens... Uh, where I came to the conclusion or the realization that I had to have a faith for myself, that I had to know what I believe and in whom I have believed. That's an encouragement from the scriptures that we not just know what we believe, but who we believe in. It is a personal but also intellectual experience. Can I have an amen? And so I, I, I believe with all my heart that God doesn't have grandchildren. You can't live off the faith of your parents. You can't live off your parents' parents. This is not some generational thing, nationalistic thing. This is something you have to have for yourself. And so I, I came to a place where I needed to uh, find out what I believe. And so I have had both a subjective experience, and I've had both, and in addition to that, objective evidence to convince me to become a Christ follower. And I spent kind of years in the early years of my life studying these things. I studied the different religions. Uh, so I've done some series here at Connect for that. And along the way, I became intellectually, in addition, relationally convinced in Christianity. Amen. And I, I, want, I want to at least expose people to some of the things that could convince you of that. Because there's, there's kind of a popular misconception out there, and that is that Christianity falls apart as soon as you start to challenge it. And a lot of Christians don't like to be challenged regarding their faith and what they believe. Um, it's kind of a kind of some common views of Christianity or Christians, excuse me, is that when you begin to dialogue with them, uh, th they'll begin to break down. And 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 Christians, many don't want to. The reason we're not a witness, as we're encouraged to be, an ambassador for Jesus Christ, a minister, the Bible says, of reconciliation, a light unto the world, a salt to the world. The reason we're not that way sometimes is we're afraid to engage in dialogue about our beliefs. That's the honest truth. If we're really sincerely honest, we don't feel equipped to encounter other people who are confident in what they believe. Is this hitting anybody between the eyes? Okay, and so I, I want you to know deep down what you believe. And, and you, you may have watched um, or observed or read uh, certain um, people who are very, very smart, uh, a lot of uh, very, very intelligent atheists in the world today. Um, you could study uh, Christopher Hawkins or, or, excuse me, Richard uh, uh, Dawkins or Christopher Hawkins is another one or Sam Harris. He wrote this book. He's probably one of the most popular atheists right now, Letters to a Christian Nation. I read the book cover to cover a couple of times with a pencil and just seeing if I could debate his points. And uh, could I, could I, would I have the apologetic response to some of his 
his issues. It was a great challenge for me to go through that book, and I, I actually enjoyed aspects of it. And, but usually, <clears throat> when you see uh, these debates, maybe you've been on YouTube. I, I love YouTube. I, I watch it all the time, and I watch things to engage my brain. I'm a very multi-sensory kind of learner. And, and sometimes you see Rabbi Zacharias or different people that are going into these debates in universities. And, but usually when you see a debate, you see it's almost like a fight. You see, you see uh, a referee come out and say, over in this corner, we have a professor uh, from Oxford University, also Harvard University. He's a molecular biologist. Uh, he's a genius with an IQ. Blah, 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 blah. And in our left corner, we have Joe. <laughs> Joe was homeschooled until he was 18 years old, and he believes Oprah is the Antichrist, and he lives in a local swamp. And these two <laughs> have the debate, right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean... Basically, Christians are depicted as idiots who have checked their brains at the door. And honestly, often we put ourselves in that position because we don't do a good job representing our belief system and what we believe. And people say, why do you believe that? I don't know. I just do. I just do. That's what I've heard. I just, I just believe. I just believe. What is that? What is that based on? What is the substance of that? Now, I believe there is there's a faith element that is indescribable, but there are other parts of our belief system that has evidence to support it, that we can, a foundation and a basis by which we can believe that engages our brains. Can I have an amen out there? And so as a result, uh, there's this notion out there that Christians, again, have checked their brains at the door, and I want to suggest uh, that isn't always true, and we have to be careful for those of us who like to engage on the other side, people who kind of know what they believe and sometimes forget in whom they believe because we get the balance in that respect, but we need to be respectful in our conversations. We need to be, represent Christ in our dialogue. When, when there are people with divergent points of view, contrasting points of view, as real Christians, we should be able to lean into people who don't believe like us and, and engage them and be an influence on them Amen. for the good, all right? And not create polarities and, and I'm right and they're wrong and we're over here in our corner, we're right, we're right. No, you're dead right and you're not getting anything done and you're making a point and you're not making a difference. Can I have an amen? So I want you to learn through this series how to shape your beliefs around what's real, not just what you feel. How many are enjoying the Brian Adams version of this message? Amen. <laughs> I'm very conscious of that. <laughs> so I want to help you on this journey. Um, one of the things that really influenced this series, the structure of this series, uh, some of the key topics of this series come from a book called The Problem of God. And we asked permission to be able to use uh, his material. Pastor Mark Clark from the Village Church in Vancouver, Canada. He is a kind of a thought leader. Um, he, uh, he's a converted atheist, an apologist. He's first a Christian, became a pastor. And there are some, just some fundamental foundational truths inside this book um, that, oh, let's just back up. I didn't know that wasn't in there. Hey, go back, go back. Sorry. Everybody's got questions. There we go. We did this. We did this. We did this. Okay, we'll just stay with that. Praise the Lord. But anyway, there's this book I want you guys to know about. So if you're interested, it's called The Problem of God by Mark Clark. Um, there, are top, there are 10 questions inside um, this book that uh, we won't address them all because it would be an extraordinarily long series, and I don't want to do that. But uh, we're going to deal with five or six of those. And the first one um, that it was the most popular question when surveyed was the problems of science versus creation. 
Another one, and this is kind of where everybody gets all hung up, okay? Another one was the problem of hypocrisy. Now, I almost didn't choose to do this particular message, but we will, because people's problem is not so much with God, it's with God's representatives. It's not so much with Christ, it's with Christians. So people don't want to associate with Christianity because of Christians, and so we want to deal with that as we go forward. Number three, the problem of exclusivity. So this is basically, uh, people basically are saying, and you see this very common view, that there's, there's not just one way. Christianity is a way. And we're going to deal with that in the coming weeks. This is a topic that will be very interesting. This is interesting that this would come up, the problem of sex. Several guys just woke up. Um, <laughs> the problem of sex. Basically, people are saying, if you have a biblical view of sex, I don't want to associate with Christianity because of that. Like, seriously? That's people's view of sex? And really, they have a misinterpretation of what God says about sex and his view of sex. And as a result, they want to stay out of that. That'll be a hot topic. And then uh, five, the problem of evil and suffering. If God's such a good God, if he's such a loving God, why would he allow this? Why doesn't he get involved in that? And we may actually deal with that next week. So this is a great series to invite friends to church. But today, we're going to be dealing with the problem of God's existence. We're going to go really way back, okay, like, like way back, okay, and, and for the most part, we're going to get outside of the Bible, and that may seem um, different for Connect, and outside of theological uh, thoughts, but we're going to look at some evidence. We're going to see, is there evidence that is uh, rational, scientific, philosophical, uh, this is a big word, but epistemological, it basically means the study of, of, uh, of, of relationships and thoughts and knowledge and making sure that it's not just based on opinion, but a justified belief system. And so uh, are, there, are there arguments that God actually exists? And we'll touch down a little bit on scripture, but for the most part, we're going to stay outside of this. Now, this is all going to be based on, or I have to first start with, um, kind of to get us on the level playing field, a presupposition. Okay, which basically means we're, we're, we got to all make sure we have the same starting point. And here's the thing. Everybody has a belief system. Okay, Christians have a belief system. For sure, we know that, we realize that. Most think it's just a step of faith. Christianity is fundamentally a step of faith. It's exclusively a step of faith. I don't think so. I don't think it's just a step of faith. I think there is, I, you know, when you look at the book of Acts, the disciples said, we cannot help talking about what we've both seen and heard. There's a lot of different points of evidence, historical evidence, prophetic evidence, all kinds of things that we can look at to say, okay, this is clearly, this is clearly something that I can base my faith on, but we all have a belief system. Atheists, atheist or atheism is a belief system. It's a belief system. Basically, atheists see gaps of, gaps of knowledge and they basically believe that uh, they have certain answers to those gaps to describe or explain life in the universe. And of course, agnosticism is a belief system. I don't know what I believe. And that's a belief system. Some of you might say, or some people may listen someday and say, I don't believe in anything. That's a belief system. I don't believe in anything is still a belief system. It's an epistemological belief system. It's an opinion that you hold. Every person Everybody you need to know has a belief system. And if you ever thought of yourself of not having a belief system, you need to know not having a belief system is a belief system. Is everybody getting me right there? Okay. And so this puts us all on a level playing field. Christianity is a belief system. And it's where I landed personally. I am first a Christian. 
And second, I am a pastor. And it was a result of a journey, a decision, but then a journey in Christ, and who I believe is the expression of God. And we'll talk about that more later. And for some people, there's a big gap between God is real and Jesus is God. And I get that. And we're going to merge those two things together. But, but in our culture, and I see this a lot in the church, most of us are about three questions uh, away from a, a belief system we have collapsing. This is a concern, okay? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe God created it all? How do you, do you believe in a literal seven days? Ah, you know what I mean? And we just start to freak out. We start to freak out. Just, just, just one, two, three questions, and our belief system begins to collapse. That is not good. I want to suggest to you, as the pastors, pastor of this church, our faith, our faith responses should be robust. They should be ready. We should, be, we should be those that have uh, a readiness for dialogue about what we say we believe. Can I have an amen? Why do you believe in science? Why do you believe in the beginning, God? Why do you believe that we were created in his image? All these different things. I don't know. I don't know. And we turn and run really, really fast. So kind of our big idea for the series is I want you to follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. Follow the evidence where it leads, not where you hope it leads. Because all of us cheer for a side. All of us had a tendency, a default to follow uh, uh, certain things in a certain direction because we get excited about the things that we're excited about. We're always up on what we're up on. We're into what we're into. And sometimes to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, when something is, um, when we get into something, man, we really get into something. You know, like when I, I got a new car a, a couple, about a year and a half ago, I got a, I got a Kia. And, and, and uh, initially, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't planning to do that, but, but I got this key, and I, I, really, I really, really like it. And I can remember when I, when, you know, it was a big investment. It was a big investment. And for, to get one of these vehicles, I remember going online, and I was reading the reviews about the different types of Kias. And, of course, you know what I wanted to read? The five-star reviews about the car that I wanted to get, Right? I, I don't want the one star. I want the five star because I want to know my decision is the best decision. Does everybody know what I mean out there? And we're like that with our beliefs too. We're like that. We want to create a dialogue not based, um, this is kind of a term that's out there today, not based on a straw man, but a steel man. See, a straw man is a belief system that, can, that is weak, that can be broken down really quickly. It can fall apart really quickly. We need to have like a steel man position or an argument that can stand up under certain tests. Straw man is, is where people see Christians' arguments are just dumb or they have no sense or they have no science to support them. But a steel man argument has intelligent explanations and observations of the universe, not just from a biblical point of view but also looking at certain evidence that is there for us. And some of the best minds in history have developed these arguments and actually left agnosticism or left atheism and converted because they saw there was a creator behind that which was created. And so don't be, don't be a straw man Christian. Be a steel man Christian in the process. And so what I want to do is I want to give you an overview of three arguments that are pivotal for our faith. And again, many people have converted just over these arguments. And it's going to get a little intellectual here. So we're going to engage our brains. Everybody just kind of touch your, touch your little brains right now. Just rub it out, rub it out, rub it out, rub it out. Okay, all right. So I want to give you three arguments for God's existence, okay? The first one is a moral argument. 
a moral argument. Now, there's kind of two aspects to the moral argument. There is physics, okay, the law of physics. Um, this, this is, we're going to get more into this probably in the next two weeks, but these are the different laws of the universe, all right? These are the observable things that we can see. But what I want to emphasize with the moral argument is what's called metaphysics. Metaphysics is beyond physics. Every scientist would say that there is more than physics, and so we need what's called metaphysics. It goes beyond what we just see or understand because there are questions that physics cannot answer. They, they don't have an answer for them. What do you think of these? What do you think of that? They, they don't know. And that's where this moral argument begins to surface. And it takes us to different places that are beyond what we see. It's more philosophical. It becomes eventually theological in the process. And there have been debates about uh, the, these morality things for thousands and thousands of years. And into that, I'll introduce the scripture, one in this particular service today, from John's gospel. This is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now, there are four gospels, four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Now, but John's gospel, and most people don't see this, John takes a more philosophical approach to the description of God. And, and, and he's basically out there with this scripture in this particular, this, this, these, these words, he's out there uh, trying to convince the physicists, trying to convince people that are struggling with the origins of the universe. In other words, out there, there are people that, that who think it's just a bunch of natural laws, but behind those natural laws are some things they can't explain about the moral laws. And so in John chapter 1, verses 1 and following, I think it's in your notes, it says... <clears throat> In the beginning, the word already existed. This is taken from the New Living Translation. So the word there, you notice that it's capitalized, word. Behind that English word is a Greek word, and that Greek word is logos or logos. And it's talking, that word there, the philosophers and Stoics of that particular day, they understood that to be kind of a, a, a moral compass or certain moral laws or some kind of moral force that was behind human existence behavior. John was pulling in this philosophical thought here because the Stoics believed in that. They believed not that that word was God, but there was something behind human behavior and human existence that was affecting it, some moral force that was affecting it. And John is saying to all those people there, that's the logos. John is saying the word showed up. It's here. And, and John is saying basically to all these people, the, remember, even Hebrews, he's saying, remember where it says in Genesis, Hebrews, in the beginning, you know, and he said, even way back there, the word shows up, and now it shows up as a person, and, and he's here. In the, and, and, and the same thing he says to the Greeks and to the Stoics and to the philosophers and to the skeptics, in the beginning you wondered, well, I want you to know something. I want you to know where he's coming from. I know where this force is coming from. The word was with God and the word was God. This thing that you thought was some vague moral force is Jesus. And so it basically goes on to say um, uh, the word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, this person. God created everything through him, very personal, and nothing that was created except through him, very personal again. The word gave life. 
to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone because sometimes we live in a dark world, right? And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So now what you need to know is, and I'm kind of moving fast because I have to, but this impersonal force, you know, he's saying it's, it's, it's Christ, it's Jesus. And he's saying to the Hebrew, the Greek, the Roman, the philosopher, the Stoic, he's, he's like, he's here, he's here. Now, for some people, that's like, if you're listening and you're, and you're a skeptic or you're here and you're a skeptic, you're like, that's great, great sermon, Derek, but where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? So let's talk about the evidence, okay? Where is the evidence to support this? Now, in the scriptures, and again, we're starting a dialogue today, so we can't get to everything, but in the scriptures, it suggests that our origin is moral, personal, and relational. Moral, personal, and relational. When I say moral, I mean God has a viewpoint on us and for our life and how it should go. It's moral. It's personal because God is not some faraway God. He's a transcendent God, and he goes out of his way to have connection and connectivity with his people because he loves them. It's relational because, because he wants to have relationship with us now and forever. Amen. So, so we can see this clearly from the scriptures, which basically means from that lens, scripture is saying we're not some random mutation, but there's some purpose, uh, and, and we believe that as Christ's followers. And, but that, that still leaves you with a question. Why? This is a big deal in, in this moral argument. Why are we moral creatures? Why are we moral creatures? In general, we are, if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you look at life and the world around you, in general, people are moral in different degrees. And there are some crazy, nuts, evil people out there. But there's, a, there's something inside of us that desires to do right or we struggle when we do wrong. There's a conscience element. We, we, are, we are by, I would submit, design moral creatures. And if everything is random... If everything is, and there's no moral force behind the universe, why are we moral then? See, the, the, the evolutionary, uh, natural, these are big words, hang on, naturalistic and relativistic explanations struggle with altruism and kindness. What does that mean? Well, evolutionary is basically only the fit, the fit make it, the, the survival of the fittest. In other words, when decisions are being made about resources and, and what to do and, and what not to do, it's always about what is going to be best to ensure my survival. That's, a, that's an evolutionist. And a spinoff of that would be a naturalist. A naturalist is just basically you're, you're, you're kind of you're led by your, your loins. You're led by your longings. You, you're led by your natural inclinations. Or my dad would say your, your natural propensities or proclivities. Big words today, everybody. You didn't know I could do that. But anyway, um, and then there's relativistic. This is, you know this one, rel rel relative. It's basically, okay, that's your position. That's my position. Can we agree to disagree? It's all good. But I, I disagree with you. We're on totally two different playing fields. And see, the problem with those positions is those three lanes or those three lenses, they have no answer for altruism or random kindness. Altruism is when a person, a human being, will put themselves out even at their own risk to save, rescue, or help somebody else. In other words, if we're not, if there's no moral compass, something that's driving our morality behind us inexplicably for some people, then why are we moral creatures? If somebody falls into a zoo where there are gorillas and a little baby falls in, this has happened. And some random person will jump into that to say, don't even know the people, to save this little kid. 
Why would somebody do that altruistic behavior? If we're not moral, what drives us to do that? Why would somebody who falls in front of a, a train at a, at a subway station jump in to save that person if we're not moral in some way, shape, or form? Or maybe you have money and, and you decide to take your resources to help somebody else and you're, and you're generous. Why wouldn't we just do what works for us? See, the evolutionist, the naturalist, the relativistic position breaks down when you consider the behaviors of humanity striving for morality. Does everybody track with me out there? And because something in us wants to do something for more than just us. Amen. That was put there. And, and if we fully engage with the opposite position, the evolutionism, the naturalism, the relativism, and this is the extreme, and I'm going to admit that, we eventually begin to devalue human life. If you go down the lane of survival of the fittest or just follow your natural inclinations, this is where we get, it's a big word, some of you heard of this, but this is where we get eugenics. Eugenics of old and modern eugenics is basically, it's an expression of genocide, in, infanticide, uh, all these different things where, where value of life goes so far down, but eugenics is basically dedicated to cleansing and purifying the human condition, eliminating the inferior to make the superior. This is where we get Nazism, where uh, you know, 11 million people were killed because we didn't want to crossbreed. We, didn't want to put, we wanted to eliminate on this level the poor and the sickly and the inferior, but on this level it meant eliminating life, devaluing life. This is, this is fundamentally, I think, where we get, if we, don't go, if we don't believe in this moral force that's behind everything, this is where we can get, my race is superior than your race. This is where we can get discrimination. Is everybody still paying attention out there? Okay. <clears throat> and people that talked about this might surprise you. Charles Darwin came to this realization in his, in his writings called The Descent of Man. So if you say, I don't believe that, I don't believe that that's true, my response is, well, that's the point. Then what do you believe about it then? In other words, if there's no moral force behind the universe, why are we moral then? Why are we, why are we disgusted by sex trafficking? Why are we disgusted by, you know, pedophilia? Why, why, is there, why are we upset about people not doing something for the poor and the sick? Why are we moral? Even if you're not a Christian, why do we keep surfacing as moral Christians? This is what led C.S. Lewis, a great theologian that many of us, a former atheist, to become a Christian. So that's the first argument. Here's the second one. Cosmological argument. You guys will be like, what is going on at Connect today? We are learning some stuff today. Okay, so hang on, all right? Um, normally, he just, you know, he's not, he's not like that. Okay, so what does this mean? And this is where we start to look at science and we start to look at philosophy and uh, regarding the origins of the universe, okay? And this is where, for example, the most common origin of the universe uh, theory is the Big Bang Theory. Some of you are familiar with this. Now, here's, here's what's true. Here's what we know. Atheists and theists, people who believe in God and people who don't believe in God, uh, agreed for centuries that anything that begins, keyword, to exist has to have a cause. Everybody up for the snack? Everybody paying attention? Everything that begins to exist, it has to have a cause, okay? Think about it. Uh, how many parents in the room? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Okay. All right, so you have, you have kids. You didn't come home from work one day, and poof, there were kids, right? No, no, you didn't like, Shazam, hey, where'd these kids come from? Uh, what, how, who's going to feed them? 
him. No, he didn't. He's just, no. There, no, there was, there was a time, there was a place when the lights came down, you know, and you got together, and Barry White was playing a little bit, and, you know, and there's some knocking the boots, and nine months later, there's kids, right? It, was, it wasn't an accident. There was a cause for that. We don't like to think about this, but... You know, but our parents, <laughs> it was, it was, we don't like to think about that. So let's just not talk about that. All right. Praise the Lord. That just really, uh, where am I? <clears throat> right. But that, that's how it happened. Okay. And so if you have a business, okay, it, it just didn't poof one day you have a business, a successful business. No, it started, it started in somebody's mind's eye. It was a vision and the vision became a strategy and a strategy became a pursuit of certain human and financial resources and it became a reality. You didn't just suddenly have a car. No, no, it, it, it wasn't just, you know, it was manufactured. It actually started in an engineer's mind as a picture in somebody's mind. And so where does this all come from? This is the root of, of what we call causal theory. Everything has to have a cause. And if you apply that reality at a meta level above, okay, the normal, where, it, where, where the universe comes from, for example, then what happens is we have these disagreements. Theists... This is so we agree there has to be a cause, but this is, this is where we disagree. Theists say the cause is God. And atheists say the cause is the universe, okay? It's random. There is no God. Now, about 100 years ago, the Big Bang, Big Bang Theory came to be, and we'll discuss this more in our message on science and creationism, but most people conclude the Big, Big Bang Theory think that the Big Bang Theory disproved Christianity, but anything but has actually transpired. And so the, the reality is, and this is interesting, that the Big Bang Theory didn't take the feet out from underneath theologians. It took the feet out from underneath the atheists. And here's the reason. Because atheists said the Big, Th Big, Big Bang Theory created us and the universe, and that the universe was eternal. But a new position came about about 100 years ago that there was a period in time where there was there was no space and time. In, in other words, at some point in time, it all started. That's where the Big Bang Theory came from. At some point in time, it all started. Bang. But interestingly enough, theologians have known that for thousands of years. So we agree that it all started at one time. And before that, there, it, it, there was no space and time. But how, therefore, if that's true, how do we explain an infinitely complex universe that began out of nothing? And, and Mark Clark, in his book, he has this great, great phrase. He says, nobody plus nothing equals everything. <laughs> Interesting. Nobody plus nothing equals everything. Now, some of you may have heard of this guy, Francis Collins. He was the director of the Human Genome Project. And in our lifetime, I think somewhere around 2010 or something like that, he mapped the human genome in our, and basically it's our DNA, okay? It's our physical and functional DNA. But he started out in life as an atheist. And then as he began to look into the human genome, he looked into our DNA, uh, it blew his mind what he discovered. It led him to Christ. And so he basically said this. So here's a former atheist become convert. And this is what he said. Um, there we go. He said this. He said, the Big Bang Theory cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only one, only, 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 that's a mistype, a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. 
So here's an atheist become convert who basically is saying something outside of time had to do that. And so this is kind of the cosmological argument. You don't have to crack the Bible over, open for this. This is just human existence questions. So here's, here's kind of our transition to our final argument. If there's no moral force behind the universe, then why are we moral creatures? If the universe didn't create us, then what created us? In other words, why or who created us? Is everybody tracking out there? Am I connecting with my audience? Okay, so here's our final argument, okay? You ready? Here it is. The evidence of design. The evidence of design. Now, there are two levels that we can talk about. The first one is the biological level, the biology level. Now, I, 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 this is fascinating stuff. This is kind of the, the micro level, biology. And then there's kind of the macro level, the ast astronomy level. But the, at the micro level... There, there are awesome things that you can dig out for yourself. A few strong arguments on intelligent design, the ID, or intelligent design. Uh, teleological argument is another word for that. And it's, like a, it's basically saying that God, God had a goal, or a goal, not God, but, but people believe it's God. But the argument is that there's a goal-oriented purpose for our design. It's very clear in our design that there was some purpose for it. Very interesting that science concludes that with this intelligent design theory. And this, this uh, particular scientist, Michael Behe, he was an atheist, also became a Christian in the process. And he basically said that whenever there, there is a purposeful arrangement of parts, that is a sign of intelligent design. In other words, when you take a watch and you look at the watch, the watch reveals by its design that there has to be some watchmaker behind the watch. A watch reveals there's a watchmaker, and the world reveals there's a world maker. Does that make sense? It's an oversimplification of intelligent design. And, and, and so creationism starts from a holy book, but intelligent design starts from the facts of nature and what they call molecular machines. When they begin to look at a molecular level, which they didn't have at Darwin's time, they can see very deep. They see machines literally moving and carrying things like it's fascinating information, and it began to blow their minds. And they realized there's some intelligent design behind this. And we could, we could discuss the complexity of the human eye. Uh, one of the top reasons that people believe in the design theories or whatever is because of the human eye, because it's literally like... Um, uh, they can't create it. They can't reproduce it. They can't always explain it. It's a validation sometimes for the divine. Even Darwin believed that natural selection couldn't have produced such a wonder in the human eye. And just scratching the surface here, um, when they began to look at the most basic things at a cellular level, for example, an amoeba, which is kind of one of the simplest forms of life, when they begin to look at the structural and meaningful data, listen to this, inside an amoeba, it could fill 30 encyclopedias, the data inside an amoeba. Is everybody with me? So when they map the human genome, what they discover is there's a world behind a world behind a world. And it began to open up the door that there, there's an argument that something is intelligent is behind the design of humanity. Does that make sense? So this is kind of the micro level. Now at the macro level, we have astronomy. Is anybody still enjoying this message? Okay. At the astronomy level, and we'll get into this more, um, basically we see the laws of physics. The laws of physics show us 
reveal to us observable data or, or information. They explain everything we see, perhaps, but who created what we see? That's more the question. That's the meta level of this. Why are there even laws at all? That's the meta level of this, the metaphysics of this. There are things that astro astronomers cannot answer at a meta level. For example, the, the, the Big Bang Theory. This is huge. <laughs> wow, big slide. If the rate, if this is related, this is, this is what one physicist said. You'll see who it is in a minute. He said about the Big Bang Theory, if the rate of expansion of one second after the Big Bang Theory had been smaller by even one part in one thousand thousandth million millionth, we're splitting hairs here, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. Therefore, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like a Big Bang are enormous. In other words, you have a better chance of winning the lottery this Wednesday than that happening. I think there are religious implications, Stephen Hawkins. You guys know who Stephen Hawkins is? He's the guy in the wheelchair, okay? And the paraplegic in the wheelchair, but brilliant, brilliant. He's one of the most respected minds in all the earth. And so, and so that's what an atheist said, right? And so when, when you look at the world today, um, well, let's go back to that. I don't want to get to that yet. When you look at our world today and what's happening, basically, where does, where does all this leave us? As, as, as Christians or as seekers of truth or as, as people that have had struggles with different problems. I want you to think, for example, about this book or any book, for example. Now, when, when, I, look, when I look at this particular book, okay, it's got a cover with a specific graphics and design on it. I look at, you know, the, 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 the front and back book is different. Uh, there's 267 pages or so inside this book. There's print that is clearly has some kind of a code or design to it or whatnot. Um, there's, there's clearly some kind of an argument inside this book. Uh, it was, it, it's, it's pretty obvious to, 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 to me that it has a writer. It has a publisher. All right? When I look at this, that's kind of what happens. And so if, 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 if I look at this this way and I apply the same reasoning to the universe, that sounds kind of crazy, but look at this. A book has no cause, no creator, no intentional design, and no meaning. In other words, if I buy into the randomness of the universe, it's like saying this book has no cause, it has no creator, it has no intentional design, and it has no meaning. Now, Lee Strobel, some of you know who he is, he wrote The Case for Christ, a former atheist. He said this, he said, to continue in atheism, I needed to believe nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning, chaos produces information, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. See, there's, there, you have to stretch even. I think it takes more faith to not believe in God than to believe in God. And so to continue that way is more of a stretch for me. And so what I'm saying as we begin this process is I'm saying follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. There's clearly a design, an intelligent design behind humanity. There's clearly signs in our, in our world today through biology and through astronomy. There's clearly a moral force behind, and we believe it's God, and that he existed in the beginning. Can I have an amen? Yeah. 